In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope. Bring your pole, oil, and rope. And try not to go down in a heap. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob, podcasting to you live from beautiful northeast Minneapolis. I don't know if I really have a main topic at the moment. One might pop in my head here as I'm uh, going through some calls that I've received over the past, well, I guess this is in regards mainly to <laughs> to the last call in Bonanza and uh, my cartoon episode. So uh, let's go to those calls and maybe something will percolate to the surface. Hey, just a heads up. I know some people have no interest whatsoever in hearing my views on political issues or, well, it really isn't a political issue, but (laughs) it's become a political issue. So if you don't want to hear my thoughts on COVID, uh, skip ahead to about the 10 minute mark or after my segment called COVID Thoughts. Hey Rob, Jason here. Not, Not to be a doomsayer, but I've got a feeling people that have not been vaccinated yet aren't going to be convinced by arguments. They'll either be forced to be vaccinated by their employers holding a gun to their head, forced, well, that's going to be either that or possibly some will be vaccinated when the FDA approves these still experimental treatments. So the other thing I would mention is definitely anybody that isn't a high risk needs to remember they can still catch that covid from other vaccinated people the vaccine is not a does not stop the spread and does not stop people from carrying it so definitely mask up and be safe even even if everybody there is vaccinated because we've had plenty of instances of groups of all vaccinated people spreading and catching covid so stay safe out there folks yeah this has been a really frustrating time to be alive hasn't it (laughs) you'd think in the In the face of a health crisis where over 600,000 people have died in your country, that you'd get kind of consensus among people to try and fight this off. I mean, if if there were 600,000 people that died of some other thing um, that was more tangible, uh, I think there'd be a lot more of a united front on this. I'm not I'm not sure why this ever became a politicized subject and what the motives are other than just to control and manipulate people. Uh, but uh, I think there are some people out there that the only way they're ever going to buy into the idea of wearing a mask and realizing that's going to help mitigate the spread of this virus and to get a vaccine is if someone close to them gets seriously ill or even unfortunately passes away because of this. Sometimes people need to get hit close to home for it to really sink into their, uh, to breach this a wall that they set up in their belief system. And uh, I don't know. I mean, when you've got some people that uh, are choosing not to for religious reasons, that that just drives me crazy too. Um, I mean, 
on some level, yeah, believe what you want to believe, but when your beliefs affect others' public health, um, you know, you put a, it can't go. If your belief system is that you don't cremate or bury a body, you just leave it in your backyard for disease to spread, well, they're going to clamp down on that, aren't they? <laughs> the, uh, the government, public officials, public health. Um, so I don't know why, why this flies. I don't know if I'd, I'm troubled by the idea of mandatory vaccination, but then again, you know, uh, there are mandatory vaccinations if you're enrolling in the public school system. I don't know what the answer is. All I know is what we keep doing are these starts and stops and the cycle of the disease just keeps going on and on. And now it's mutating and eventually it's going to mutate to the point where the vaccines that do have efficacy against them aren't going to have as much and we'll need to develop new vaccines and then new variants will will mutate in hosts that of unvaccinated people that keep transferring it among themselves so it it's a never-ending cycle it might get it might become a less and less of a threat as more and more people get vaccinated and thank goodness the vaccination rates are going up but it's still <clears throat> unless you have some kind of underlying health problem where <clears throat> your doctor <clears throat> excuse me and not a self-diagnosed one where your doctor has specifically told you I don't think it's a good idea for you to get a vaccine. Um, I don't understand why you wouldn't. I can, I can kind of understand the, the hesitancy among some that uh, look at it as, yeah, it hasn't even been authorized by the FDA. Um, but you know what? The, the thing lost in all this, what about the hesitancy of we don't really know what the long-term effects of having COVID are. I mean, even if you were pretty much asymptomatic while you had it, you didn't notice anything, or you just had a, a, a day or two where you felt a little under the weather. You don't know, we, we don't know really if there are any long-term ramifications that might crop up in later life. And especially among kids, that don't have any say in the matter. I mean, one of my great, uh, my great nephew and my great niece, the son and daughter of my nephew, both got COVID and they're both young children. And we don't know what, it, what it's going to mean for them. Hopefully nothing, but we don't know. And, um, yeah, it's just, as, especially it hits me, obviously, I have an axe to grind in this. I mean, it it kicked the shit out of me. And I don't, I mean, the breakthrough rate is really low. and uh, But I haven't seen any strong data, and maybe they just haven't, they don't have enough of a sample base yet, but of the people that do have breakthrough cases where they they get reinfected with COVID, 
how many of those people that were previously hospitalized end up back in the hospital. So how many people in breakthrough cases that are hospitalized, what percentage of those people were hospitalized before? So if you're really prone to have COVID kick the crap out of you, are you going to get the crap kicked out of you again if you're reinfected? I don't know. So, I mean, yeah, there's there's an, a strong element of Rob fear in my point of view. I don't want to have that. <laughs> I can't afford to lose any more brain cells, for one thing. Uh, I already feel like my brain chemistry has been altered to some degree by my, my bout with COVID. But just the fact that I work in with the public, too, knowing when I look at the doors that at least 30% of the people and all of the little kids that walk through the door of my grocery store are unvaccinated um, is very troubling. Because you know the people that are unvaccinated are also the most likely, most unlikely to mask up. So it's like this, this dual threat of stupidity. Yeah, I've kind of had it with this, and um, I don't know how we're going to change things. You know, if, if the dumbass that actually was in charge when these were developed, I'll give him some degree of credit for that. The dumbass that actually got the vaccine, but is reluctant to tell the people that look up to him that he got it, that won't actually go out and shout from the mountaintops from people to get his vaccine if he wants to lay claim to it. Talk about dereliction of duty. Talk about bankrupt morality. And uh, with that, I'll go back to talking about gaming. You know what makes me really happy, Rob? How well you know me, man. I was 100% tickled by the fact that Henchman referred to me as J.R.R. <laughs> that was dope, dude. Yeah, I I wanted to also let you know I, too, like the long format shows. I have a lot of mundane tasks. I have to walk everywhere, and that just takes a long time. So I enjoy lengthier podcasts, even though mine are typically shorter. So I'm right there with you on that. Also, I'm right there with you on the whole idea of if everything is weird, then nothing is weird. I feel the same way. Funhouse Dungeons, yeah, I don't know. In small doses, they're, they can be fun and interesting, but I'd much rather just have take a portion of a Funhouse Dungeon and put it into a regular situation. Anyway, man, that's it. Um, great stuff. Peace out. Bye. Hey, Rob, me again, and this will be the last one, probably. I love your setting documents. I I always do whenever you read them, or you've sent me one in the past. I, they're so It makes your game sound so much fun, man. I loved you reading that out. All the little bits of lore and everything. Seriously, dude, your players are really, really lucky. Anyway, man, great stuff. Peace out. Hey, thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. Um, I guess with my recent setting, I'm just (laughs) 
building mainly on the genius of uh, Glenn Seal and the other contributors for the Midlands game setting. I mean, I, I'm twisting it a little bit and making it my own like I do with everything, but but the uh, foundation is definitely give the credit to to those creators and my stuff is just making it fit more of my play style and game but i appreciate it and uh, yeah i hope my players enjoy it and uh, appreciate the the documents the the stuff i send to them and stuff i think they they do um i know i appreciate it as a player when a dm ref whatever you want whatever you want to call them i guess referee is probably my the thing i think of or i usually say dm but in my head i'm thinking referee and and maybe that's a topic i don't know but another topic is the uh whole idea of weird uh and that was one of my must be one of my first episodes where i laid out my i don't know if i call them rob's rules of gaming something like that where i listed the my uh, i don't know tarnished silver nuggets of wisdom <laughs> that i've come to kind of believe about just gaming in general over the years and one of them is something to the effect of an RPG is better if some element is rooted in reality. So if there's something to ground the players on, they're much more able to relate to the situation than if everything is weird and alien. The whole idea that if everything's weird, nothing's weird. If everything's weird, it becomes mundane. If every bar is like the cantina in Star Wars... It becomes the norm, so you may as well just have it filled with a bunch of humans that each have their own individual mindset and uh, set of things that make them unique, just like all humans <laughs> do. So, yeah. Anyway, thanks for the calls, and uh, I'm glad you like the, the longer format show, too, because I... I as you know, I tend to ramble, and I don't think rambling's bad. Okay, Mr. Rob, I have a question. Are you going to try to run all your games for this new setting, or new campaign, West Marches, Open Table thing? Are you going to try to run everything as one-shots, where you're wrapping everything up in a single session? Are you going to require them to get back to town first? You might have said all this and I totally missed it. But do they have to get to a stopping point before the end of the session, like back to a safe haven? Or are you going to run the risk of, you know, just characters, you know, having two characters out in the middle of nowhere? You said you would let people rejoin the sessions if they weren't the previous one, you know, with minimum hassle. So are you not going to worry about that? And, you know, if you have three characters on the fifth level of a dungeon you know and two other people show up then poof they're just there with them on the fifth level i've been in games like that works fine i'm just curious if you thought about those things oh yeah i've done a lot of thinking about that my intent is for it to be a more episodic kind of thing where ideally 
the players end a session back in some kind of safe haven. I do provide incentive for that in that characters, player characters can only advance a level if they do so um, in a, some kind of safe haven, essentially a place where they don't need to feel like they need to post a guard or have some kind of watch schedule or something. So that could be really any place that meets that criteria. I don't say it has to be a town, but uh, that that usually ends up uh, being the case. Some Some point of light place of civilization is usually what that means. Uh, but no, I don't... I'm not going to force them to return to base at the end of each session. It does make it much easier if you have a rotating cast of players. But right now I only have five potential players in the game. Is that right? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Is it five or six? What am I? Keith, Bill, Adam, Brian, Matt. Five. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so anyway, uh, at like last session, uh, there were only three. But they, the session ended basically with them coming upon a town. So they've traveled to Houndshead. And that's where the next session will begin. So that will be easy enough if uh, the, the missing players... Uh, show up at this session, they'll be at the town. And if the if any of the players that w were in the previous session aren't in this one, they'll be left behind in the town if if that's you know, if the if the current group goes off into the wilderness. And yeah, I mean I just I try not to make it difficult for the the players that weren't in the session to catch up, to just join the action. They were following along their trail and come upon the group, you know? Or, I mean, you can just make it, and just say, hand wave them in. And I know in our group we do that from time to time. It's just, you know, it doesn't really work well in the fiction of the excuse me, the game, um, but... Uh, it's not like it. None of us take the game so seriously that we can't just set aside the game fiction for the sake of playability in the game. I think that that's something that everyone needs to just recognize at some times is that for the good of the game, you just need to say, all right, well, these people are here to play, right? They're not here to just be an observer, so let's get them in the game. So, yeah. So, I've just finished the episode. Uh, I really uh, like all the detail you put into that. Wow, makes me feel like I don't do nearly enough. <laughs> but yeah, really good. Uh, as far as the Kickstarters, yeah, I, I feel the same way. It's like, I know things got screwed up, so I'm kind of giving a little bit more slack to most people, but I feel like people are kind of consistently running behind. Uh, the Back to Basics, though, I, I would assume is going to be on time, because that's probably like the sixth or seventh project from that that uh, creator, Tom, there that I've that, uh, backed, and he's always been right on it. So 
Um, I don't predict there'll be a delay there, nor with the strong consortium of sorcerers. The zines are always a thing, right? Because most of the people doing those zines are not, we'll call them, I mean, I don't mean it in an insulting way, but not kind of professional creators. I think a lot of the zine creators are first timers or second timers, or, you know, they're not uh, such a large thing like a Goodman Games or something like that. So, uh, you know, they probably uh, can be given a little slack as far as being a yeah, I have really kind of mixed feelings, I guess, about Kickstarter as someone that just has started dipping their toe into that whole process over the last year and a half-ish. <laughs> uh, for the most part, it's been a really a good experience. I I get completely where you're coming from, Daniel, when you talk about there are Kickstarters from companies from established groups that maybe aren't uh, a company or a, a group where their sole uh, income, their livelihood is dependent upon their work in the gaming industry. But maybe a few people, that's their, their livelihood, and, and then uh, the rest are like part-timers or freelancers that also have a, you know, a quote-unquote day job and for the independents that i think are represent most of the people that take place like in zine quest where it's for the most part either a one person operation or one person that's the primary creator who also reaches out to others for help in providing art for editing and maybe for producing some of the content. Then, of course, their schedule is also a little bit dependent upon those other people um, who are pitching in, too, and whether or not, you know, they're they're being paid for their work or doing it, <laughs> I don't know, pro bono, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I, I do give those people a lot more slack, and I hope I wasn't sounding like I was like calling people out when I was talking about the various Kickstarters I uh, backed. I mean, when I back the Zine Quest projects, A, it's it's a very limited investment. I mean, when we're talking 10, 15 bucks or 20 bucks or whatever, it's, you know, that's, uh, that's going out for a hamburger. Um, that's not, <laughs> that's not that much money. And if it didn't fulfill, I'd, I'd maybe be a little bit, peeved about it but I and I probably wouldn't back anything if they tried to do another project but uh, you know I'm not going to get real upset about it I I do sometimes wonder though about the whole process and whether or not it's become a sort of crutch is the wrong word I guess but I wonder a little bit if it's really the intent of the whole thing. I mean, Kickstarter is not going to shut things down, right? Because they get a piece of the pie from all these people. Whether whether the person that's launching a product project actually needs crowdfunding support or not, you know, they want <laughs> they want their piece of the pie. And uh, but some of these companies, I do kind of, I don't know. I think you should have. If you're kickstarting a project and you're like a a well-known game company, if you're someone like Cobalt Press or 
troll lords or frog gods or, you know, these Goodman games, these not Hasbro, not Paizo, not Chaosium, maybe not Steve Jackson games. I don't know. I, I don't even know if I'm right. Hasbro obviously is number one, right, in, in income. And where the others break down along those lines, I don't know. But for those companies, it seems to me that they should have pretty much everything done. And if they need to do a Kickstarter to actually help cover the costs for getting art uh, or for doing the actual, you know, providing the capital for printing, yeah, that's okay. But there shouldn't be these, like, COVID aside and and other circumstances along those lines. I mean, yeah, I get that to some degree. If you're having something printed overseas, um, it can incur serious delays and stuff. But uh, I don't know. I I think those, those bigger producers should have something pretty much done when they're kickstarting it and all they really need to do is provide add some art go over it with uh, an editing editing fine tooth comb and and then just print it so anything that's got more than like 6 months at the most from a, a big producer to me is a little bit ridiculous of course that's coming from someone that's not in the business and really is like a child walking into the middle of a movie. I, you know, I don't know all the <laughs> details. What I do know is uh, this morning, and it's now Friday the 13th, uh, carry your rabbit's foot or whatever if you believe in that hocus pocus, um, <laughs> is that I got a... Uh, thing in the inbox from Glenn Seal of Monkey Blood Design that he's do, they're doing another Kickstarter for some uh, handy maps and stuff. And uh, now there's someone who is the is the prime example of like this is how Kickstarter should be run. Monkey Blood announces something. Uh, the Kickstarter is finished, you know, two weeks, a month later or whatever. And when that thing wraps up, it seems like it's only a month or something before Glenn is collecting address information and and sending stuff out. I mean, I have no trouble at all backing things like that. But when when things start getting into the six month delays and stuff, then I start thinking, eh, I don't know if I'll ever back anything by them again. And um, and. This whole process, too, is reinforcing to me that any thoughts I'd personally have of, you know, doing, taking part in Zine Quest, for instance, which would be like a natural kind of dip your toe into the, into the process kind of thing, you know, putting out a zine seems like something that most of us with a, with a little bit of creativity and maybe a sliver of uh, of layout and editing ability, writing ability, could maybe throw something together. 
But I, I honestly, I want no part of it. If I ever did something, it would, and, and all the stuff I do create, it's just free, you know, because I don't want to put any pressure on myself. It's not that I don't think people should be paid for their work. If they want to, that's, that's great. And I'm more than willing to pay for other people's work when I think it's good stuff and when I, you know, just want to support them or whatever. But, but personally, I don't want those, that pressure. I don't want that responsibility. I don't want my hobby to feel like my job. And, uh, and I don't want to be beholden to, to other people for some timetable or something. And if I, but if I did, if I did ever like decide to, in my retirement, to just do something creative to maybe, you know, raise enough money to, I don't know, buy some little thing, some $500 thing or something and, and not be out of pocket for it. Uh, I'd have it done before I'd do something on zine quest and all I'd maybe have to do is go purchase some stock art or, uh, or pay someone a, a little something to do some work for me or to edit things for me or something like that, you know, but I'd, I'd have pretty much the thing done before I'd even think about asking for money. And that's just me. Not trying to cast aspersions. All right. uh, Now I got some calls from Roy from Chaos's Limb. Hey, Rob Roy here. I am almost completely caught up with your podcasts now. And I wanted to take issue with uh, a comment you made about not thinking that the stuff you put together was very original, that you're just taking pieces of existing stuff and putting them together maybe in a new way. But what is creativity if not uh, a repurposing of old elements in some unique new configuration? To quote Ecclesiastes, nothing new under the sun. But uh, beyond that, I think every GM and every player is creating something. Every time they come to the table, they're creating a new experience that has never existed before and will never exist after this strange form of theater. Let me also say I really enjoyed your Thieves World session reports, and like Joe... I'm amazed at how you keep so many balls in the air, so many different potential plot points running at the same time. Like, where do you get the idea for all these different things that might occur that are happening in the world that they can, the players can plug into? That's a pretty remarkable bit of creativity, if you ask me. Thanks for the vote of confidence there, Roy. I appreciate it. And I'm glad you enjoyed the session recaps that I did for Thieves Guild. Um, not sure if I'll do those again. I I can. I mean, if people would like to hear that as a, a regular feature, I can certainly 
do session recaps every once in a while for what's going on in middle March. I have thought about having like a a separate channel from time to time. Uh, and the the reason for it would be that it's I would kind of like to have some kind of roundtable discussion about people's different campaigns and stuff uh, and just getting feedback from other game masters about projects you know I'm working on and maybe other people would like to hear uh, feedback for their personal stuff too but some of it you just don't want your players to hear right and uh, so I so I don't really talk about uh, developing adventure ideas or or in-depth like behind the curtain kind of things that I'm thinking about uh, for the for the campaign and um, I mean a lot of it in the Thieves Guild too a lot of it is just reacting to what the players seem interested in and usually my my procedure is just to start out with a list of kind of things that are happening behind the scenes and and those things start progressing and I I try to have a few movers and shakers whether they're like NPC humans or if they're some kind of organization or cult or if they're some monstrous entity and I try and think of their plans from the point of view of me running them like as a, a player character and I just have those things start happening and sometimes the players find out about them sometimes they get really interested and investigate and sometimes they completely ignore them and pursue whatever self-interest they have as you know for their character or for for their group their and and it just becomes something that kind of dies on the vine and maybe the party will hear rumors of something happening in the land that they or the city or whatever that they decided to leave and that might bring them back or it might be just like Ugh, good thing we got out of there so it's um yeah that that's just kind of what I do and sometimes there are quite a few different things to juggle especially when you get into a town or city setting and the players uh have their characters kind of separate and start pursuing their own uh, little things like what was happening in that that thieves guild uh town scenario there was kind of a central element with the execution of the gang going on and the and the potential jailbreak but then there were also these kind of side hustles that a couple of the characters were doing where they were each trying to do their own little heist under the cover of this central event so it it was all kind of threaded together in some kind of spider web or something but at the ends of the cobweb, a couple of the players were kind of, you know, tethered only 
by a thread, and the others were a little bit more wrapped up in it, if, I, <laughs> if that makes sense. But, uh, yeah, but I, I really don't think of myself as being all that creative, um, certainly not creative enough to think that anything I put out is um, something that hundreds or thousands of people would be interested in looking at. There's just, I guess, there's just so, so much stuff available now um, through drive-through, just all over the place, right? And so much of it makes me realize that what I do is kind of small fries. There's a, there's a lot of really good, productive, creative people out there. It, it, it is kind of the golden age of the hobby that's been opened up through the information age or whatever. But, uh, so that's really encouraging, um, and a little discouraging at the same time when you start, uh, when you start trying to measure up to some of the people that actually do really great work. But, uh, now we got some cartoon talk. Roy's got some stuff, uh, call from Jason, and then some calls from BJ from Arcane Alienist. So, exit stage left. Take it away, guys. Hey, Rob. I really enjoyed your cartoon episode, though I was surprised that He-Man didn't make an appearance on any of your call-ins. Also, I was disappointed that I forgot about Battle of the Planets, although... I had to uh, do some Googling to even figure out the name of it. Uh, The Japanese name, if any of your listeners recognize it by that, is Science Ninja Team Gachaman. Anyway, that one uh, I remember just being really fascinating to me as a child. The contest was rigged. You didn't include all the contestants, Rob. Maddie is very unhappy. He gave you an entry and you ignored him. Man. Now now I've got to find a way to calm him down. You broke that little puppy's heart, my friend. I did enjoy it hearing everybody's entries, though. Talk to you next time. Rob, it's BJ. I I missed the cartoon contest. Sorry about that. Um... You know, I lived in an interesting time in the 80s when they were transitioning from <clears throat> using cartoons in a conventional way to, to then get kids to watch commercials for cereal and generic toys and things like that to when the cartoons themselves became commercials for products. So early on, you had the ubiquitous Super Friends and Scooby-Doo and various versions of those characters, uh, along with Looney Tunes and the Flintstones. Uh, and then I remember the... <clears throat> The wave we got of uh, video game themed Saturday morning cartoons. There was a Pac-Man one. There was a Qbert one. I think there were some others in there. Uh, trying to <laughs> market the arcade games uh, before uh, home consoles took over. Uh, but I think of the Saturday morning ones, the two that I liked the most that stand out in my mind were uh, Ghostbusters, based on the, the movie. Um, and then uh, there was one that was a, a double feature with the Incredible Hulk and then Spider-Man and his amazing friends, which featured Iceman from the X-Men. That was my first exposure to the X-Men, who, who have 
kind of always been my favorite. Went on to become my favorite comic book and some of my favorite superheroes. But uh, but then there were the the syndicated after school and before school shows that were specifically for toys. So He Man, GI Joe, Transformers, and Thundercats were kind of the big ones. So uh, and I think of those. Even though Masters of the Universe is kind of in everybody's mind right now, GI Joe was probably my favorite because that was the toy I collected the most at that age. Interesting enough, as much as I love D and D, I never watched. I only got to see a few episodes of the cartoon because my grandmother uh, did not like me watching that show, so I, I had to sneak it here and there, and I never really got into it the way maybe some other people uh, who love D and D did. So I'm vague pet familiarity with the characters and their their magical weapons, but as far as a a complete memory of the entire run of the the show, I don't have that. Um, my favorite cereal uh, to watch cartoons to was Cookie Crisp. That that was my favorite, and I I still love Cookie Crisp, although it's bad for my health and I don't eat it anymore. But yeah, that's that's my that was my favorite cereal. So now I've put it off long enough, I'll go ahead and, and complete the uh, the challenge and then sing the theme song. Here we go. You'll fight for freedom wherever there's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe, a real American hero. G.I. Joe is there. Hey, and here is an afterthought, and I know I've gone on long enough uh, <laughs> on cartoons when this isn't even going to be played if you play it during the cartoon episode is... Despite my childhood, <clears throat> probably the best, and I, I know you're not a big fan of superheroes, but the best animated series in terms of quality of writing and, and storytelling and just craft, I think, remains. And th this is one that started, I think I was a senior in high school when this, this started, so this isn't really a childhood, but is Batman the Animated Series. That is just, that is just such an amazing animated series. Um, and so I'm, I'm leaving this message just to, to say I like that show and also because I know it's going to prompt um, Jason to, to respond because <laughs> I know he loves that show too. All right. Thanks for those calls, guys. I appreciate more cartoon talk. And <laughs> it wouldn't be a day off here for Rob without construction going on outside my window. So if you hear some beeping and rumbling in the background, yeah, there's some heavy equipment moving around out there now again. Uh, that's, I guess that's one thing I love about winter. There's no construction. It, I, it all gets, you know, done outside those three months or whatever, which is, I guess, why it's so pervasive in the summertime and stuff, but eh, whatever. Um, I too was a little bit surprised that there were a few cartoons that hadn't been mentioned in the initial wave and He-Man, like Roy brings up, was one that I was half expecting to hear about G.I. Joe was one that uh, I wasn't, that had, had slipped my mind, but looking back on it, I could certainly see where, where that would have been a, a really popular cartoon for future gamers to have been inspired by. And the other, the other one I was really surprised not to hear anything about was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. A lot of these things came out, I don't know if it was just that I, maybe I'm a few years older than some of you guys, but uh, I don't know. Your mindset, I guess, changes pretty rapidly 
from being like 11 or 12 to being 14 or 15 or 16. And you start looking at other things with more interest, for instance, girls. <laughs> uh, and you get a little less preoccupied with things like cartoons. But uh, but I do remember watching G.I. Joe um, and thinking it was, it was okay. Now, the funny thing is, for me growing up, we had the, the full-sized, like, dolls, like, like the equivalent of, like, a Barbie doll that were the G.I. Joes, and, um, my brother is six years older than me, so I'd get a lot of the hand-me-down toys from him, and he had, like, these really old G.I. Joes. In fact, I, I mean, some of the ones I had, too, were pretty, pretty old. I remember they had, uh, uh, I mean, these all came out of the aftermath of World War Two, right? And uh, um, and how like soldier toys. I think they've probably always been something that people thought boys would be interested in stuff. But I think it really kind of blew up after that, and maybe died down in the wake of Vietnam. I don't know. Just spitballing here. But they had like GI Joe land, sea, and air. So kind of like a uh, Army or Marine, Navy, and Air Force, and they all had a, a slightly different look, um, and of course, different uniform and different gear that they came with, and um, <laughs> I, and they, so they, the doll only had, like the left hand had kind of a, a cupped hand or something, and the right hand had their like trigger finger out so you could hold a rifle basically um and and other things like a flare gun or or whatever but uh so it was a really limited kind of things these dolls even though they had different articulation points and stuff it was pretty you know pretty limited what they could do um and uh and then it was a big thing when, I don't remember the year, I, I might have been 11 or 12, so it might have been like 79, 80, 78, something like that. They came out with the G.I. Joe with Kung Fu Grip. And they, <laughs> so it was kind of this rubberized hand that uh, was almost like a pseudo-clenched fist or whatever, so the the fingers could move a little bit, but they'd break off after you did it, after you played with them for an extended period period of time. It just, you know, the the movement back and forth would weaken and eventually fracture the, the fingers, so you'd be left with leper G.I. Joe, you know, missing various digits. But I also had uh, one of my, one of the play sets I got was this underwater thing where it had like a sea sled and a scuba suit, like an actual rubber suit that you that you could squeeze GI Joe into, and one of the uh, pieces of the suit was uh, this kind of rubber hood, and then there'd be like a scuba mask and snorkel and and uh, aqualung and stuff, and I'd and my brother had the the set which was like a deep sea diving suit. So it was like the lead shoes and diving helmet and 
there was this like hose that would come out um, of the, you know, would have like some attachment to the diving helmet and you could blow on it and bubbles would come out of the diving helmet. So we'd, <laughs> we had G.I. Joe do like uh, underwater action in, in the uh, 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 cow water dunk tank or whatever, the, the cow tank the water tank for the, for the cattle, and, uh, <laughs> it would be all scummy and stuff, uh, but, uh, but anyway, so when I peeled the rubber hood off of poor G.I. Joe, it took off, like, portions of his beard and hair, so he had all these, like, pattern bald spots and stuff that I, <laughs> I desperately tried to fill in with colored markers, so it wasn't so obvious that he'd be, become scarred and, and uh, defaced and stuff. It was it was kind of hilarious looking back on it. But that's my, I mean, that's how I thought of G.I. Joe, so in these small action figures, which, I don't know, did Star Wars popularize those smaller action figures, but then G.I. Joe came out with them and stuff too. That was, they came out after I, I wasn't really interested in toys and stuff anymore. I mean, the only toys I really uh, still messed around with were like Lego and stuff. And especially when I had, uh, my older niece and nephew, um, they were born when I was like 14 and 16. So, so I'd play with them and stuff too. But, uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, but cart, so Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, He-Man and, um, and GI Joe Ghostbusters. I remember seeing too, um, He-Man never, resonated with me at all it just seemed kind of uh too i don't know too goody goody and too kind of just hokey i i mean i i guess i should rewatch a couple episodes or something and maybe maybe i'm having this lingering impression that is incorrect but uh and then of course there's the 800 pound gorilla there's the the big cartoons that you know the Simpsons, Futurama, uh, South Park, Family Guy, these, these cartoons that became, uh, powerhouses in primetime television and were geared much, much more towards adults than, than children. And just relying on, I guess, the, the fact that cartoons were popular and, uh, with kids, and now that the kids were adults, they'd, you know, be popular format for for that as well. Anyway, uh, I'm going way too far afield. Cookie Crisp, I love that too. Um, I, I just can't have sugary cereal anymore, unfortunately, but I, ooh, I, I, I often find myself pining for a bowl of uh, Cap'n Crunch or lucky charms or whatever, you know, <laughs> instead of my usual grape nuts. But if you've got more cartoon thoughts or even about, you know, I, I started talking about toys there and stuff too, but, uh, yeah, just looking back on the different, um, media and things we were exposed to as kids growing up in the late 70s, 80s, 
for some of you in the 90s too. So uh, yeah, it's all kind of interesting stuff and how it forms our thoughts about games and the superhero thing is something that definitely is uh, uh, instrumental in a lot of people's viewpoints and stuff and it's just I should I should check out that Batman thing that BJ brings up um, and I know like Clone Wars and stuff is really popular with some Star Wars fans and stuff too I just haven't checked it out my even though I like cartoons I I haven't really branched out too much and it's something that I'm kind of interested in revisiting now um, I really want to uh, go find Johnny Quest now too so hmm. but there'll be more cartoon stuff coming I promise do I have some time for main topic I don't know maybe I'll set a timer or something so I don't go crazy probably been too long already All right, I set a 10-minute timer for myself so I don't uh, (laughs) go crazy rambling here. Uh, Earlier, my reply to Joe about if everything's weird, nothing's weird, I referenced uh, an old episode. It was actually my third episode that I dropped. I I guess it's going on two and a half years ago or so now. It was called Rob's Rules of Gaming. And I don't think... I don't think of them really as rules. I, I probably chose it for the alliterative Rob's Rules kind of thing. But like I said, they're more like tarnished silver nuggets of wisdom. Uh, you, I listened back to that show, and I don't, I don't think my opinions have really changed on, on those thoughts. Um, go ahead and listen to it again if you'd like, but... There were just 12 things that I brought up. And uh, the first was diminishing returns. That The idea that at some point adding more players makes the game worse, not better. And the same goes for rules or game length or something like that. At some point adding more stuff has a negative impact rather than a positive one. The second was every game has a shelf life. The third is, life is short. Play the game you want to play. And that's not just about rules, that's like game style and stuff too. If you find yourself in a game you're not enjoying, why are you playing? Find find a game you want to play in. And find a group you want to play with. Four, RPGs are better when some aspect is rooted in reality. And that's the whole thing about when everything's... Weird and alien. Uh, nothing's really weird. Five. No plan or scenario survives contact with the players. A referee must be flexible. Pretty self-explanatory. Six. Give players options. That's pretty self-explanatory too. Seven. A game is only as good as its ref and its players. It's a two-way street. Um, no game is going to be automatically awesome by itself. It needs a good referee and it needs good players. If you got a crap referee, it's probably not going to be a good game. If you got crap players, 
it's probably not going to be a good game. Uh, eight, a game system that doesn't fit your play style can set a ceiling on the enjoyment that you get out of it. Again, you know, I can have fun just having a conversation with my friends. You know, that's going to set a floor for enjoyment with a game. But uh, the amount of enjoyment we can have can have a ceiling set by the actual game content, the rules, the scenario, all that business. Uh, nine is avoid monotonous and meaning, meaningless roles and actions whenever possible. So basically what this is saying is avoid routine. If the game devolves to routine, if virtually every uh, obstacle is met by going through the same routine, it's going to become routine. It's going to become boring. We all have enough routine in our lives. Games are supposed to be an escape from routine to some degree. Ten. Only call for or make a die roll if you're prepared to accept the result. That's basically one for referees out there. Eleven. The players shouldn't succeed or fail all the time. A mix is best. Pretty um, pretty obvious. And 12 is my is essentially the gaming golden rule. When you're a referee, run the sort of game that you'd love to play in. And when you're a player, be the type of player that you'd love to have in your game as a referee. And don't be a jerk. Nobody wants to play with a jerk. Now, I don't know, there's probably some things I could add to this, but the one thing that I can think of that's kind of come to, to light over the last year or two and listening to what some people have to say about things in gaming and... Uh, controversies and issues among game groups and stuff would be I guess something like this no set of game rules can solve your social issues if you've got a problem in your game group whether it's bickering over rules whether it's the content of the game you know, if, if it's a controversial subject to someone, if it triggers someone, if you're just butting heads with someone over something as simple as scheduling the game or whatever, you're not going to find the answer in the game rules. It's called a conversation. You need to have some kind of dialogue and the idea that you're playing with your friends and, well, hopefully, I, I suppose some people are playing with strangers, but they're only going to stay strangers for so long. And at some point, if you're going to become friends with these people, you need to respect their opinions and you need to feel like you're allowed to voice your opinion, right? So I don't think we should be looking into game rules to solve these interpersonal 
relationship issues. You should be able to speak freely among yourselves and have a conversation and come to some accord over these things. And if you can't, maybe it's just not the game group for you. The problem isn't in the game rules at that point. Right? And we shouldn't be looking to game rules to solve these things. And we shouldn't, in my mind, other than outside of, like, convention play or some kind of, you know, one-shot organized play or something, but that I can see we're having some kind of gimmick or something to to stop play and or throw a veil over something and move on whatever if it's if it's a subject that bothers someone fine but if you're talking about a a group of friends playing on a regular basis just have an adult conversation right <laughs> and maybe not even in game session maybe between sessions you talk to the people that are having an issue right while you're while you're gaming at the table just come to a quick solution out over something and then discuss it later. But uh, the game rules are meant to regulate game activity. They're not meant to, to regulate your social behavior. I also think it's important for people to realize that not every group should fit every person. Some people just are oil and water, and that's just the way it is, right? You can't, I don't think you should be looking to expect everyone to have the same tastes, nor should you be looking for a game to fit every potential personality and every social, well, every, every person's experiences, their own personal experiences and biases and stuff. Realize that you're just playing a game and that if someone doesn't enjoy a game, they shouldn't be playing it. And you shouldn't have any hard feelings over disagreement about what you enjoy in a game. Don't worry so much about it. Don't worry about what other people think, what other people are doing outside of your game group. You know, just play your game. And don't look to the game rules to solve all your problems. I guess that's it. All right, it's uh, August 13th. Happy birthday, Bill. And, uh... Thanks to everyone that called. There's my timer going off. So I'm going to wrap it up. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Daniel from Bandit's Keep, to BJ from Arcane Alienist, Roy from Chaos's Limb, Joe from Hindsightless. Uh, did I say BJ from Arcane Alienist? Uh, whatever. If I, if I, that timer is distracting me now, not to mention the heavy equipment. Ah! Until I talk to you again, don't go down in a heap. Thanks to Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast and Maddie from Nerds RPG Variety Dogcast. Sorry, Maddie. I'll put your name in the fez next time. Ah!